Welcome to Founded in Japan, where we share uncommon knowledge about starting up. Many founders begin their startup journey without formal sales training or experience. In this episode, hosts Paul Chapman, Jason Ball, Nalan Advani, Ilya Kulyatin and guests discuss the fundamentals of B2B sales for founders needing to rapidly acquire sales expertise in order to succeed. Founded in Japan is recorded live on Clubhouse. Audio for some speakers may be degraded at times. Nonetheless, we hope you find the content to be valuable throughout. Do you have a question or topic request? Please reach out to us on the Business in Japan LinkedIn group. Thanks for joining us, and here we go. It occurs to me that everyone knows a little bit about sales, but very few people know end-to-end how the process works. Jason, Nalan, Ilya, will you indulge me to go through this framework that I just came up with about an hour ago? (laughs) It's literally a mental download of how do we do sales? What have I learned about sales? I'm currently heading up sales at MoneyTree in the interim. But we have two great director level people actually doing the hard work of leading the teams day to day. And I've got to say the last five years, I have learned a lot about sales. So I I often talk about people who are sales only and people who are sales also. And the truth is you'd need a good serving of sales only people, but at the right stage. More than just indulge you, I think there'd be a lot of people in the audience and myself who'd like to hear your download. All right, this is definitely an alpha version uh, of what might be a future blog post or something. Let's get started. So I'm breaking it down into one, two, three, four, five different stages. And I'm going to just preface this by saying, yes, this is wrong. This is a perspective. This is a treatment. But maybe, just maybe, it will be helpful. Stage one is prospecting. This is the idea that you have in mind of a salesperson trying to give you their business card at an event when we had business cards and in real life events. They're creating connections. As my dear mother would say, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs to meet Prince Charming. Sales is just the same. You have to do a lot of the same thing. Has anyone seen Groundhog Day? Has anyone not seen the Bill Murray classic Groundhog Day? I don't know how well that movie has aged. However, sales is like that. Sales is not about smarter. Sales is about harder or more. And The truth is you don't know which ones are going to work. You don't know which ones are going to fail. A little bit like venture investing. So prospecting, meeting people, creating connections, following leads, and getting that first meeting. When you have uploaded the sales-only mindset into your matrix-connected brain, everyone remembers this. I know Kung Fu. I know Jiu-Jitsu, I believe, was the comment when he, uh, he had martial arts uploaded for the first time. If only we could do this with sales because it's less about hard knowledge more about tacit knowledge. It's more about knowing the meta pattern of sales. So getting that first meeting, when you meet someone or the marketing team hands across an MQL, a marketing qualified lead, maybe it comes in through the website, maybe uh, an investor introduces you to someone who's interested in your product. You get that first meeting. It used to start on the phone. I got taught a long time ago and I was definitely not old school. You can't close a deal on email. But you almost never pick up a phone these days until you actually meet them. So you've got to convince someone to want to meet with you. And right now on Zoom or Hangouts or Teams, getting that first meeting. So that's the first stage, prospecting. When you get to that first meeting, all you're thinking about is, of course, you know, I want to help this potential customer. I want to help someone solve a problem. But the truth is you're thinking, can this become a deal? Now, you've got to have this dual mindset of you're in a service industry now. You're helping someone make a purchase. But at the same time, you're carrying a number as a salesperson. And if you're a CEO or a C-level in a startup, you are also carrying a number. 
And if you don't make that number, fundraising will be harder. You may run out of money. You may have to go and, oh, get a J-O-B. I, I don't mind J-O-Bs. I, I give out a lot of them. But you don't really want to have the story of your startup end because you couldn't figure out how to sell or you couldn't find the right people to help you sell. That would be the worst. Let's get back to stage two, creating a deal. You've got to establish relevance and show how you provide value. And there's a lot of social signaling when you do this. The most important thing you can learn at this stage is how to ask questions, how to listen. That was a pregnant pause to show you I could listen. <laughs> I can say this at least. I know the kinds of questions I need to ask. I know the things I need to check off on my list in order to get to that next step. It's, it's like a date. You have to signal that you're relevant. You have to signal that you will provide them with value. No one wants to give up their time for something that doesn't give them value. Otherwise, you're just hoping your prospect will be charitable and perhaps give you their time. But if they have no budget, if they have no inclination to buy, if they just want a friend to talk to, you're wasting your only valuable asset as a salesperson, which is your time. So creating a deal, establish relevance, and also establish a foundation for long-term trust. So what you do in the early stages says a lot to your prospective customer. As a founder who met lots and lots of vendors, the worst thing that they could possibly do is get in touch and then ignore me for a long time or act like their time is more valuable than mine or that they're not really into this and you know it's a great inconvenience for them to meet with me or to bring me something that just isn't relevant. But sometimes you, they get lucky. Sometimes people contact me and it's like, I'm looking for something like this. Oh my God, how did you know? You read my mind. Establishing that foundation for long-term trust comes from those first few interactions. So prospecting, creating a deal, that's stage one and two. Stage three, helping the client to buy. Your job is not to sell, it's to help someone buy. Why? Because you want them to be happy that they bought it from you. You don't want to push it onto them. You don't want to be transactional. You want to sell once and retain them. I would imagine most people are thinking about software services, or even if it's hardware, some kind of service component attached. No one wants to do the one-time sell anymore. Everyone wants to do recurring revenue business because that's what investors like. I'll reference the jobs to be done framework. This idea that customers, people, you, me, businesses, companies, we hire a product or a service to solve a problem for us. So this is called jobs to be done. It's a product management, product design framework. But think about it from a sales perspective. You have to solve a problem with the technology that you have. And ideally, and this is more for the salespeople than for the product founders out there, try not to create new engineering requirements by doing so. If you create new requirements and you can then sell it to another thousand customers, that's the kind of requirement a head of engineering wants to hear about. You know, the custom bit of work for one client, people hate that because it's not scalable. But today we're talking not about product for salespeople, but sales for product and other non-salespeople. So jobs to be done. Think about what you're solving for them. Identify their challenges. How can you solve a valuable problem for them? They may not even know what that valuable problem is. And I'm going to share a really, really useful insight. In a company, especially a traditional company, an older company, oftentimes everyone will rally around an idea, also known as a buzzword. And as much as buzzwords are given short shrift in startup land, although we use them all the time, a buzzword is a shortcut for mutual understanding. So if they're looking for a fintech or they're looking for DeFi or they're looking for Internet of Things or they're looking for something else, SaaS, you can leverage that opening and that shared understanding, that shared desire to get the organization to do what you want. And this is perhaps more relevant in Japan than everywhere else. 
you don't sell to the person, you sell to the organization. Now, there are a lot of sales frameworks and books out there that talk about this stuff. So I won't go into it too much in too much detail. But just remember, you may have one guy or one gal who really, really loves what you do. But if they leave, that account is in jeopardy. Or if they don't have the power to make the sale, maybe you'll be spending a lot of time and not closing. So helping them buy a solution. That's stages one, two, and three. Now, stage four is supporting the client's onboarding. And this is about clarifying communication. So what are the client's expectations? By now, as a salesperson, you should know better than anyone at your company what the client wants. You've spoken to them. You've held their hand. You've told them it'll be okay. So post-sales, I suppose, when the delivery team, the implementation team gets their hand on the client, do they mess it up? Do they do something different? Was there some special requirement that you didn't communicate to them? So preventing dissonance or... Another word for it is unmet expectations is the salesperson's job. You want to smooth those rough edges. And then guess what? This may be a revelation to a lot of people who haven't done sales. As the salesperson, it's your job to make sure they pay. That wonderful client that you spent all this time with, if they haven't paid their invoice, guess who's getting on the phone? It's not going to be accounting. It's going to be you. And that's hard. Salespeople always want to be the good guy, right? But you've got to remember the number one team is your team in the company not the customer. And this is a common problem I hear in Japan, client capture, where the salesperson identifies more with their customer than with their own company. There's another view to this, which is the salesperson will go to another company one day, most likely, and they want that to be their customer then as well. So in some ways, loyalty to the customer will outlive loyalty to the employer. That's a crazy thing to think about. Stage one, prospecting. Stage two, creating that deal. Stage three, helping the client buy a solution. Stage four, supporting the, the client's onboarding. And then the last one is not really part of the sales cycle, but this is a really important thing. And this is where everyone who's not on the sales side or perhaps on the marketing side needs to really open their ears. Sales represents the voice of the customer in your organization more than anyone else, even more than customer success, because customer success talks to customers happy enough to buy a product. Sales talks to people who didn't end up becoming customers, the ones who were dissatisfied with the service or didn't like the product enough. And that may represent an opportunity. This is a challenging thing for founders and C-level people. Sales will often bring bad news and complain about how the product isn't good enough. And your job is to figure out where they're right and where they're wrong. And also to deal with the fact that they think they're always right. <laughs> That's a hard one. But you know what? If your team's winning, they'll feel better. So in a B2B organization, sales is closest to the customer. Your CTO, your chief of products may think they know better what the customer wants, but only the sales team actually talks to the customer every single day, most likely. Company, it's like a submarine. Everyone in the submarine, depending on their position, has, I guess, some visibility. Maybe there's a porthole. You might have a radar or a sonar or maps or satellite imaging, but only one person can look through the periscope at a given time. The sales team are the ones looking through the periscope. They have that view of the customer. And their job is to share that with everyone else. I'll finish my download with this one thought. Product founders commonly lament that sales teams rarely know exactly how things should run, although salespeople often say they do. Sales teams sure as hell know when things are going wrong. I speak from experience. Jason, Nalan, and Ilya, what did you think? 
That was long. Tell me what you really thought, Elena. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I thought this I warned you. I warned I, I, you. I think this needs to be split in all five parts and require probably one, uh, <laughs> one evening uh, each. What I wanted to do was give non-sales founders, I guess, a framework, an overview to think mm-hmm. of. Again, I'll, I'll talk about the stages, prospecting, creating the deal, helping the client buy, supporting the client's onboarding, and representing the voice of the customer. These are the key stages. We don't have to talk about all of them. I just wanted to start with something that everyone could refer to in case they have never done sales before. For me, the one that really sticks out and the one that I think embodies the most difficult aspects of selling as well as kind of encompasses the range of activities is the one that says helping the customer buy. That's the most difficult one and the most nuanced one. And in a sense, the most undefined one as well. A good word to start. All right. So we're going to drill down into helping the client buy. As Nalan pointed out, this is the most wide ranging and perhaps most important part of selling B2B. Who would like to start with, I guess, with the obvious that you're non-sales founder, should you, should you try and sell? Or is this, do not try this at home, ladies and gentlemen, type of stuff. But as I say, usually, right, the founder should be also the first ones to be salespeople in a startup. So I guess even technical founder should start to sell. Interesting, they usually don't know where to start. To me, the punchline really is that sales is a team effort and even more so in B2B. If you're the founder or like in Paul's question, would you put the CTO in front of the customer and have him sell? I really think there's roles for each person to play. And part of it is, and this is why it's difficult, is getting each person to learn their role and in a sense, getting each person to stay in that role that they're supposed to be in. I do remember talking about this in one of our Sunday morning Japanese ones where I had two founders, one a CTO and one a CEO. At that time, I was running the Japan organization and we were very careful where we would put these guys in terms of being in front of the customer or the public because one, the customers loved him, but he would also go off and promise stuff that he should be promising. And the other one, customers didn't like him, but actually he knew what he was doing. While it's a team effort, perhaps the first step that the team has to take is define and understand their own skill sets and roles. But sorry if I'm taking this a little bit off track from the point you had asked, but I do honestly think it's a team effort. That's actually a great point. And I face this problem in the current and previous startup where I tend to be the one that is maybe slightly more likable on the sales side. But there is the need for a person that, that knows the timing of the execution. For instance, one example very recent with IoT startup, it always helps to have one of the co-founders uh, during the uh, initial client calls because clients want to see this technical guy who knows what he's talking about, not just somebody with no particular technical experience in that area. I do agree with Nalin that both of the profiles would need to be present, at least at the startup stage, where you still need to create that credibility and still both need to understand the product because it takes time to understand the product, even when you're one of the co-founders, if you're on the less technical side. Ilya, that's, that's a good point. In a more mature sales team, you have the salesperson, you have the pre-sales engineer. So the pre-sales engineer tends to do the technical validation answering questions, knowing the products very technically, those people very rarely can maintain the relationship to the point of getting the deal closed. They're very different skill sets. You're absolutely right. Having a technical CEO or CTO in the early days makes a lot of sense. 
later on, it's not very scalable to keep doing that, except maybe for really big deals or uncharted territory. You need someone who really has broad knowledge of the space and of the product. Would you have that same person, that one person tasked with closing the deals? Because there, there's a big difference between an opener and a closer. A lot of marketing people are wonderful openers, but they don't know how to close. And it's because it's a different mindset to some extent. I am radically oversimplifying. While Paul was talking about these five points, I had this thought. I recall um, Francisco, who is also in the audience, he asked me last week, now that he has some sort of an MVP, what's the roadmap to get the first client? So my question would be, what would you say is the roadmap for an enterprise sale in Japan? Nalan, would you like to have the first shot at this? Thanks. So a roadmap to enterprise sales in Japan. There's multiple things happening, I think. One is if you already have an investor and the investor is connected to an enterprise customer, even better if the investor is a CVC, then you can call in a favor or two and have somebody be a paying or almost paying customer. In my way of looking at things, that's the ideal way because the cost of sales is less and the likelihood of success in that initial effort is much higher. So I think this is the ideal scenario. It never always goes that way. But the next best option, I think, is if it's a new technology, then there will be sometimes um, consortia or industry associations. And somewhere in there, you have using Jeffrey Moore's classic crossing the chasm model, you'll have a few early adopter types who are more interested in checking out the new technology than in actually having a successful, perfect implementation. So then finding one of those, connecting to one of those, and that very much comes through also a networking and relationship effort. That person is quite likely to onboard you, maybe as a paying customer, again, maybe as an almost paying customer. And then I think if neither of these two are possible, then you have to beg. <laughs> And when you do that, usually it means you get your first customer as a non-paying customer. But in all three of these scenarios, I think the point I really want to make is in Japan, especially you need this magic word, which is jiseki or a track record. So whatever it takes to get that first customer, even if it means he's not going to pay, is super important because that's what's going to land you your second and third customer. The fact that you have somebody who's using you, hopefully he's using you and he's happy with what you've given him. Hopefully, if you can get him on board, that helping the client buy piece, then it's more about getting them to maybe pay and then getting them to continue paying if they haven't paid for their first year. So that's, I would describe my approach to this. But of course, there's so many people up here on the stage and I'd like to Ask everybody else how they feel about this. And we have also some new guests, Maurizio, Francisco, Rohit. Hey guys, I could personally talk for hours about this. Actually, I slightly disagree with Marin. I think you should never do anything for free. I mean, ever, particularly because Mitsubishi FG is not going to ask you to do anything for free. The kind of companies that are likely to ask you to do stuff for free are the ones you probably don't want to work with before. I do agree that you can definitely consider heavily discounted first client type relationships or promotions, but free instead gets me, gets me itchy. Just a couple of points I wanted to bring up on this topic, how 
you get your first sale or your first and second sale. I think one thing that's really important is to just be out there, right? Meaning, depending on the stage of your startup and the stage of your MVP, you should go for hackathons, startup programs, accelerator programs, competitions. You really need to do a very active outreach. Whether you are salesy as a person or not, you just got to get over the hump and you need to tell the world what you're doing because a lot of these programs are sponsored by companies. They're looking out for solutions to their problems. So check the problem statements and the topics of the challenges and make sure that they are something that your technology addresses, does it in a way that makes sense for uh, whoever the audience is. But we found in our case that B2B sales have an incredibly long sales cycle. But if we participated in a program and we did well, we got in touch directly with the right people at the organization that we wanted to reach. So that's definitely one way. The other thing is now the startup world is so diverse. You have startups that are essentially multi-billion dollar companies that have a lot of cash. And what's interesting to me is that there's a whole host of companies doing extremely well, just selling to other startups, <laughs> selling them automation services and all sorts of service type products. When never thinking about B2B, you need to have that lateral thinking of trying to capture as many businesses that are suitable for your solutions possible, not just the brand names, because those are going to be the ones that everyone wants to go for. So have a little bit of creativity in that part of the process. I would second that. Never do anything for free, ever, ever, ever. On the other hand, you can do things like just take money once. I had We had a client that used the service for a long time in a very narrow way. They paid us once. It was $10,000, but it was once. And they paid us with what's called a tegata in Japanese. This is a promissory note. So we didn't even get the money straight away. And we had to sell the tegata, the promissory note, back to their promissory note buying company at a discount. It was quite the scam. It was, of course, a very large company that they could get away with squashing their uh, the suppliers like this. But we were happy to be squashed because we wanted what Nalan was suggesting, which is get that first name, get someone big, get a logo that will validate you. So we, we took it. It was actually pretty good. We had their logo for a long time. Selling to startups is definitely a thing in Silicon Valley. I would say an emergent thing in Japan, meaning that if, if your goal is to sell to startups and you're not a recruiting company in Japan, then it's probably still a pretty small market, but it is growing. And more and more young non-startup companies, so non-high growth, but newish companies are using the same tech stacks as startups. They're using G Suite, they're using Teams, they're using Zoom, they're using Slack. So this means that if you start building for startups and young but non-startup-y companies, well, together that's a bigger demographic, but it's still just a drop in the ocean in Japan compared to I was speaking to someone today, he called it Chanto Stakaisha. <laughs> if you don't speak Japanese, it means proper companies. I think he meant ones that have been around for a while. Yeah, I take your point, Paul. But again, we're talking about the early traction. So I think going down that route, even though it may not be as popular in Japan. This is a common trope in uh, Silicon Valley. I used to think, wow, this company got Google as a customer. No, this company got a team or a person at Google to become their customer. And probably didn't even ask permission to use the Google logo on their website. And I guess in their <laughs> eminent benevolence, Google doesn't crack down on that. But yeah, I guess if you could get like Mercari or <clears throat> MoneyTree or other leading startups to be one of your first customers, that, that still counts. 
that definitely counts. I wanted to mention this one thing. So I do agree with what Marisa says about selling to startups. So why that also can help. So the startup that I'm helping now, it was very significant sale to a local startup and it will never be a big contract, but it helps. It also helps to understand if the product is actually needed. This particular sale, it resulted in this user, the CTO, organizing a call with one of the investors because he was so happy with the product that he wanted to pitch it to his investor because he wanted this to have a funding so that he wouldn't need in the future to deal with, with this problem himself. So it, it helps also get to get this exposure to understand if the product is actually useful. So even small sales are great in the beginning. That's exactly why I was saying sometimes you have to do this for free because if you get caught in a negotiation which could slow down the adoption of the technology or the product or the service, that may, what you just described, may never have happened, right? And so you want to get to that stage where you have people who are now selling for you. And in Japanese, there's this interesting saying, which is actually, there's two versions of it. I'll try and say the Japanese first and then the English. Tada hodo kowai mono ga nai, which means there's nothing as scary as something that's free. And then there's a second version of it, which is tada hodo takai mono ga nai which is there's nothing as expensive as something that you get for free. So when I say you need to do something for free, I'm looking at the total value of that relationship and not just the value of that initial transaction and hoping that first, even if you are selling for free or near free, that the time and speed you gain by doing this will more than compensate for a perceived loss on the first deal. Well, I need to write those down. Great phrases. Hey guys, thanks so much. Francisco here. So a quick question. And I think that the topic came up before, but as Nalan was talking about this first client and there was a lot of discussions between doing things for free or not. Does a PLC count as a first client? Can you use the, would you guys use a logo of a company for whom you're doing a POC as a first client? I would say, yeah, definitely you can use it. The POC is still, it's showing credibility if you get a good brand to put on your website. Obviously you can, you should also try to sell it because a lot of startups face death by POC. So if you do just lots of those without actually converting the clients, then it doesn't make sense. Initially, I would be more than fine with creating POCs and showing that big clients trusted you. But I think the value in the beginning is the value of a brand on your website, on your product is higher than uh, what you're actually I, I getting would, out of it. If you can't make a proper sale, a POC may be something you consider, but don't pivot into the business of POCs. A lot of startups do that. And they're like, we got another POC. It's like, great, you're going to spend six months to earn $10,000 and it goes nowhere. And then you put it on your website and you still don't have a repeatable business model. I hate POCs, to be honest. But if that's all you can get, if that's all I could get after trying my darndest to get real living customers, I'd probably take it, but don't take too many of them. I was going to say exactly what you're saying. POCs are good in that your customers may or may not give you money for it, but they are going to give you resources. They're going to open up APIs. They're going to give you access to data and so on. So they are making some investment, even if it may not always be cash, but you absolutely should not get in the habit of doing them over and over because that is a black hole that is very hard to come out of. And believe me, I've been there. The one POC we ever did 
in nine years of Money Tree and I guess five or six years of Money Tree Link, our platform, yeah, it was just, it was a time suck. It was a good lesson in why not to do POCs. But at that evolution, that's not the point. What if it was your, your very first foray? If you can get a really good date, get the, you know, you get, get a slightly less good date. Uh, better than being by yourself, I suppose. But yeah, you want to try and level up so that you have a repeatable business model. We haven't really talked about B2B sales specific to Japan. And this is a Japan-focused room. Who has some thoughts on how we can help non-sales founders do B2B sales specifically in Japan? What's different about Japan and everywhere else? Yeah, that's exactly the direction that I was about to take my comments. But just to quickly introduce myself, my name is Bo Becker. I'm the founder of Reiwa Pharmaceuticals, a small startup here in Tokyo. We focus on helping Japanese people affected by Asian glow. But actually tonight, I'm hoping to pull on my experience before my startup. And I, I spent about five years working for very traditional Japanese machinery companies doing specifically B2B sales for them. So I do think I'm, I have a bit of a unique perspective to, to bring into this. And what I wanted to bring to the discussion was a bit of a talk of the specific differences between sales culture in Japan and I guess the you know, Western business culture in general. And I, I thought I would share one quick story just to highlight these differences from my experience. While I was working for this machinery company, we would often meet with foreign multinational companies at their factories abroad, but also with our Japanese customers at their factories abroad. And I, I traveled to America with my boss one time. And on the first day of the trip, we were meeting with a Japanese company at their factory. Second day of the trip, a similar large American company. And so, you know, we had gifts, you know, since Japanese business is so relationship based, we had gifts prepared. We had the company calendar that we were ready to give to them, you know, whatever it was. And first day we met with the Japanese company. And as soon as we arrived at the factory, you know, the bosses are waiting at the door. We go in, have, you know, sit down for a nice tea and don't even talk about business. Just talk about life in America, talk about how their families are doing, whatever it was for about two hours and ask them about their factory, their business, but never really talked about a sale. Three hours later after work, we all got back together at the local Japanese restaurant and you know, we're drinking, talking, and it wasn't until two hours into the meeting that we even started talking about serious business, two hours into a dinner. And so it just shows how relationship-based it was. Whereas the next day, we, we got up, drove to the similar American factory, got there, nobody was waiting for us. So we had to call a person to reception. They didn't offer us any drinks as we got in, shuffled us into a small meeting room, you know, listened to what we had to say for an hour, and then we were, were hurried out the door. Don't get the idea this was a company that we were the first time we were meeting them. Both were, were longtime customers. But I think it just shows how important relationship building and you know, showing your customer that you really do care about them is, is in, uh, in Japanese sales culture. So I just wanted to, to share that, my, my perspective on, um, on how important it is to take that extra step and um, you know, try to impress your customer, you know, whoever it is, with, <clears throat> by taking the extra mile and showing them that, that you do care about their time in, in some way or another. 
Oh, that was great. I think that was a very vivid illustration of, of Japanese B2B sales. I know Bo is extremely fluent in Japanese and his previous career and his startup has, has basically been done in near-native Japanese and Paul, not so different. For our listeners who don't speak fluent Japanese and are facing early or even late stage desire to build their B2B sales in their company, what would you say, starting with Bo? Just, uh, how, how to do sales in Japan without Japanese? Maybe, maybe you should go first, Paul. First, to set the context, you wouldn't try to do sales in America without English, unless you're selling to like Spanish speakers. But let's say it's not English or Spanish. You'd need someone who could communicate, right? That's, that's a first step. You need to have someone on your team who, especially if you're a foreign founder, who can hold the hand of the Japanese client. And until you're recognized as being a legit local presence, and Money Tree, for example, is a Japanese company, and I can go into most meetings, and I don't have to work too hard to validate myself as like just being a local or equivalent to a local company. But at the same time, I also know how to signal that as well, like with very small things or asking certain questions or making certain comments or reading a little bit about the other person and then giving them a platitude about you know their recent interview and so on and so forth. So I also know how to handle that. We had a, we still have a wonderful person who took us under his wing and taught us to work with Japanese banks. And he was our senior advisor. He's still in our company today, but now as an auditor. So look for the advisor person, look for a sales manager. And just remember, you're going to have to upgrade your sales staff as your company gets better. You should be fluent in understanding the mind of the customer. If you're the CEO, especially, you need to have perhaps the best model of what the customer is thinking. And of course, it's just not just one customer. So it's, it is a little bit academic to say the model of it, but it's a model. The map is not the terrain. So those two things, hire a sales manager, find a senior advisor type, find someone from the industry who will hold your hand and take you to those meetings and will vouch for you until you have enough pull to say we're a local presence. Yeah, I, would say I don't have too much to add on top of that. I would say another point I wanted to add to the discussion is the importance of phone communication in Japan and how I've made so many sales calls over the phone and I've found it to be much more effective than email, even in modern Japan, because most of the decision makers in Japanese companies, I will almost say all of the 99% of decision makers are going to be older gentlemen who really don't have much English fluency. And so I've had mo a lot of my personal success by phoning directly and trying to get on the phone with that person. So I would have to say similar to Paul that if you're not able to keep up with the business Japanese, it would be better to find a competent person to, to fill in that role for you. Japan is just a country where the language barrier can be quite high. The good news is there are way more people willing to talk to foreign-founded companies about products and services. There are way more companies willing to consider startups than, say, five years ago, 10 years ago, definitely. So the trend is going in a good direction for people like, I'd say, most of the people in this room who are starting startups or are considering it. I guess that's the glass is half full argument. And the glass is half empty argument is that it's harder than ever before to hire people because if you think about it, the last 18 months, 
a lot of a lot of things have been growing, but at the same time, you're not necessarily getting all the people that you would have from overseas coming in. And this includes people who are Japanese returning, like, although some of them have increased. Perhaps this doesn't apply so much to sales. It does definitely to engineering and design and product management, but not so much to sales. How if you're in the software business, I would say one of the good things is that there's a whole generation of people coming out of companies like Salesforce and a lot of the other big American companies, the cloud companies as well, AWS, Microsoft, Google, that now are probably looking for something else to do. And they've learned a lot about how those businesses work. And that's a huge benefit. I know that at MoneyTree, we started enterprise sales five years ago. And the way we wanted to sell, what we wanted to sell, there just was not, there was no one in the market who had those skills that was willing to work with us five years ago. So we had to find people and then repurpose them, meaning that we teach them new things and try and figure this thing out. And we still hadn't figured out how to sell our product that well because we weren't so experienced back then. It's a lot easier now. So maybe my glass half empty is actually pretty half, is pretty much half full as well. And I'd actually like to jump in with one more point, which is, Jason, you were just speaking so kindly about my Japanese ability and how I'm very fluent. And you know, I actually, I'm not sure that's entirely true. I certainly speak good business Japanese, but I'm in no way at a native level or completely fluent. And at one point I do really like about doing business in Japan is that even though when I call up a company and they hear my introduction, my spiel, every single person knows that I'm not a native Japanese speaker. They can tell it right away. And I'm sure that I make grammatical mistakes and say one or two things wrong. But I've found that almost every person I've talked to has patiently listened to my grammatical errors, never called me out for it, always been extremely kind and listened to whatever I've had to say and take me seriously as a business person just because I picked up the bone and went for it. For anybody that is maybe at a conversational level with their Japanese and feels a bit nervous about picking up the phone, you know, obviously the first few times are going to be a struggle. And I often need to write out a couple lines before picking up the phone and get a few vocabulary words ready for each call. Don't be afraid to pick it up and give it a try because I've found that almost all Japanese business people and secretaries are so kind and very ready to listen to whatever level of Japanese you're bringing to the table. I'm going to add to that. It doesn't apply if you're a recruiter. <laughs> I have worked as a recruiter. We're actually getting close to normal finishing time. We've been talking today about B2B sales for non-sales founders. We've covered a lot of information tonight with incredible speakers, but have we recovered everything that you wanted to cover from your initial presentation, Paul? Well, it really was a mind dump of how I see sales and I guess a lot of the gaps that I've been able to fill in these last few years from direct experience. And of course, working with great people and making lots of mistakes. I don't think we've even scratched the surface, to be honest. Luke just came up onto the stage. Maybe Luke's got something he'd like to share. Thank, thanks so much, Paul. Thanks, everyone. I'm not a founder, not yet anyway, but I've really enjoyed the conversation because I've been in B2B sales for startups and for quite some time. On the other end of the scale, where I have founders passionate, they love to talk about their product and all their service. And sometimes it's best not to take them along to a meeting because they just are so passionate and it, sometimes it can get in the way of sales. And on the other side, sometimes it's such a, a joy to take them along to sales because they just have such a really in-depth knowledge of their, their product and their service. They've got a great story to tell. And this sort of goes back to what 
I was saying as well that yeah, getting on 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 the phone as a as a founder can be pretty difficult if you don't have that Japanese ability to get through the gatekeeper and that. But if you just persistent, I think it's calling four or five times to get to the right particular person. And even if you're using English and vice versa, if you're using Japanese, it's just going to take that time and investment for founders, I, I think, to get to know what actually is sales. What does it take to, to sell in Japan? And if you've got a small team, if you have one or two people getting sales, going out with the sales, salespeople, finding out what are their challenges? Why is it difficult to sell? Why are they reaching their targets? Why are they not reaching their targets? Because sometimes that glass ceiling can slowly begin to develop with, okay, you guys do sales and I'm doing product. Like you mentioned before, Paul, you can be so focused on the product that, that there, there is a sales process and there's a, there's a sales team. While they've got that periscope up, hopefully more than often, I think it's great for founders to take an interest in that sales, even if they don't feel like a salesman. When you get into it, sales is really not, it's not like you're selling a used car. It's really involved. It can be marketing, it's customer service. I think in Japan, they really love that attention, that that personal level attention that you can spend two hours at a party or I've called up a client four or five times a week to try and get in and in on hold of them or you're writing emails, you're sending out newsletters. Like it's, it can get really involved. I think for founders at startups, just showing the sales team that you take some interest can help in the long term rather than putting up a wall and saying sales are sales, product is product and treating it as such. Thanks, Luke. There's some really good insights into coalface of sales, the gemba in Japanese. Of course it's sales, so it's not easy. And picking up that phone, you get to that gatekeeper, she, she doesn't want to let you through. No, Suzuki-san's not here. You've got to have that gumbaru <laughs> type attitude, that persistent attitude. If founders can see that, then they go, oh, okay, this is what really sales is, or we need this particular product pamphlet, or we need, we need to go to this trade show. What benefits are we going to get out of this trade show? from our company and from a sales perspective, yeah, having some knowledge about what is actually required, whether it be from JetRo or different startup events that focus on sales and marketing, even events like this, I think it's really good to look at sales from all different aspects. Well said. I think you should have come up onto the stage a bit earlier. <laughs> I'd like to leave everyone with this one thought. Um, I'm not sure if everyone knows the story of the Omi Shonin. So Omi is a place in Japan and a Shonin is a business person or a seller, a merchant, someone of the merchant class. And I imagine Omi is a place where everyone apparently is engaged in entrepreneurship. I'm imagining a town that looks like the set from Kung Fu Hustle, except instead of everyone secretly knowing Kung Fu, everyone has a business or two or three or four. And there's a saying about Omi Shonin that there are three types, Un, Don, and Kon. And I think this really is perhaps one of the greatest lessons non-sales people need to learn before they get into sales. Un means luck. So there are the lucky ones. I'll skip to the third one, which is Kong. Kong is Konjo, which is guts. And the middle one is Don, which I think of as Donkan, which is just, you've got to be dense. You've got to be non-reactive. And so the three most revered attributes of the most famous, I guess, town or village where people are known for entrepreneurship are luck, guts, and let's call it resilience. And I think that's one of the Biggest in insights I had when I first started doing sales only is that don't be smart, just do more of what you're doing. As long as you're doing the right thing, you need to do more of it. And that's one of the key mistakes of people who are very clever, who solve problems every day is they think by switching and flipping and changing, they're going to get better results. Often, as anyone will tell you in sales, activity will get better results. 
I love that one, Paul. I didn't know that, but I love that. And thanks for sharing it. I learn something every time I'm on the, on this Monday evening one. But I'll share mine, which is Giri Konjo and Yasegaman. I don't know if anybody's heard that one before, but it's like the echo of what Paul just shared. And it's very important in getting business done in Japan. Hope to drill down further in this in, in another session, but I really enjoyed today. So thank you for having me here. Thanks, Nalan. And thanks, Ilya, Jason, and all of tonight's guests. Paul, do you mind in the end just repeating the five points you mentioned before? That was my point just before. Again? I was trying to say, if we're not going to talk about anything else, can you please summarize? All right. <laughs> right. All right. The five parts of the framework are prospecting, creating the deal, helping the client buy, supporting the client's onboarding, and representing the voice of the customer. Thanks, everyone. And that's all for now. Thank you for listening to Founded in Japan. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse on September 9, 2021. Founded in Japan is part of the Business in Japan Clubhouse and LinkedIn group. Follow us on Clubhouse or LinkedIn to join our live audio events or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Feel free to reach out to us on the Business in Japan LinkedIn group.